0: Welcome to Settler Colonialism from America to Palestine. Today we have with us distinguished professor of history at the University of Akron, Walter Hickson. I'm Grant F. Smith of the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. The power of the Israel lobby has been growing for decades. Since 1948, Israel has been the leading recipient of U.S. foreign aid, now mostly military U.S. aid. And aid to Israel has even exceeded the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after World War II. This powerful lobby has become a major obstacle to peace in the Middle East. Available public opinion polling shows that most Americans now oppose U.S. Middle East military interventions, violations of international law, and unconditional foreign aid packages to Israel. But experts and alternative voices with better non-Israel-centric peaceful policy options face tremendous obstacles gaining platforms and news media, government, and policy-making circles. But what if they could get a relevant platform at least for a single day every year? Since 2015, Israel LobbyCon held at the National Press Club has featured some of the best, most dedicated and innovative voices from the US and around the world. The networking, relationship building, and information gathering opportunities at this conference are simply unmatched. Staged at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., and occurring just days before APAC's annual policy conference, Israel LobbyCon even gets a little bit of mainstream news coverage with C-SPAN broadcasting the event over cable and radio, and sometimes we even get an article in the Washington Post. We can't presently meet at the National Press Club, but we can still gather with top experts and you online to focus on how to transcend harmful Israel lobby initiatives and work for better outcomes. A reminder that this public online forum We're working to ensure that our speakers, moderators, and attendees don't use it as a platform to perpetuate racist or bigoted behaviors or practices. And our conference stands opposed to all other forms of racism and expressions of bigotry directed at any person or group. We also reject the charge of anti-Semitism when it's used spuriously to silence legitimate criticism of Israel's policies and practices. Presenting Israel Abikon Extra, co-organized by the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy. Delinda Hanley, the executive editor at the Washington Report is backing us up in case we lose our connections and we'll be helping with emails coming in in the comments below down there and via email. Our email address is israellobbycon2020 at gmail, also right above in the background there. This online series, which we call Extra, does not replace our annual National Press Club Conference currently scheduled for March 5 of 2021. But until we reconvene at the National Press Club, welcome to Extra. We have with us Walter Hickson. He's the author of a half dozen books on the history of U.S. foreign relations. He's taught history for 36 years and is currently distinguished professor of history at the University of Akron. Hickson's books include Israel's Armor, The Role of the Israel Lobby in the History of the Palestine Conflict, Cambridge University Press, Spring 2019, Israel's Armor is a groundbreaking history tapping untapped source material about Israel and its U.S. lobby's impact on American foreign policy since 1948. American Foreign Relations, A New Diplomatic History by Rutledge, 2016. American Settler Colonialism, A History by Palgrave Macmillan, 2013. We'll be discussing that quite a bit today. The Myth of American Diplomacy, National Identity and U.S. Foreign Policy, Yale University Press, 2008. Parting the Curtain, Propaganda, Culture, in the Cold War, 1945 to 1961 by St. Martins, 1997, and George F. McKinnon, Cold War Iconoclast, Columbia University Press, 1989. So I've talked enough. Professor Hickson, uh, your last book, Israel's Armor, and I even hear your next book, uh, are focusing on the Israel lobby. So, before we start off, tell us how you became so interested in the Israel lobby as a topic, and how did you get into all this? All right. Thank you,
1: Grant. Um, Yeah, it's been an interesting trajectory, as some of those books you cited indicated. I started off uh, not working on the Middle East, I was a Cold War historian for uh, my early career and um, more centered on Europe and on the Soviet Union, and spent actually uh, 10 months living in in the Soviet Union right on the brink of its collapse. Um, So I was really focused and not on the Middle East at all. And um, it was really the uh, 9-11, the Iraq War and the aftermath of that that got me interested in it. So throughout this century, I've been focused uh, on, um, you know, not exclusively, but quite a bit on on the Middle East and uh, really stuck with it and got interested in the lobby because uh, it's so clearly important to me. And yet,
0: mm-hmm.
1: here I was, a, a functioning diplomatic historian for a long time, and I didn't, you know, appreciate its role and its importance. So it was clear to me that, uh, you know, a very large number of people didn't understand it and appreciated it. And so, you know, if you're a scholar or an intellectual or a journalist, you're in the business of trying to you know, do work and do research to inform people, and this seemed like a very right area to uh, to gain information and, and inform people. And it's um, been really eye-opening to me um, how I, I think I have shared a lot of the stereotypes about uh, the the so-called Israel-Palestine conflict and viewed it as one of these you know, deeply rooted religious conflicts that neither side wanted to settle, et cetera, sort of all the stereotypes. And um, it's really uh, not tremendously complicated and uh, very one-sided. And that's, that led to, to settler colonialism, which we can talk about in greater length.
0: Right, so we're getting a little bit into this idea of cross-disciplinary questions and scholarship and now uh in the very last article the edition of the washington report on middle east affairs the october edition uh you started putting um some more connections together for readers uh with an article titled how settler colonialism can give us or can help us understand israel and the u.s uh, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, h- how can that help us understand both countries?
1: Well, the the term settler colonialism, which you know we're going to focus on today, I think has really rich explanatory power, and as you indicated, cross disciplinary. So you can explain a lot of history at a lot of different times, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit with the next slide. But the reason I wanted to write the piece in the in the Washington Report and um, following up on the book I did on, on American settler colonialism is that it, it certainly does apply to Israel and it helps explain the special relationship between the United States and Israel. But I also felt like this term has started to, to get bandied about quite a bit. Right. And I'm not sure that all the people who use the term, um, you know, it's become sort of ritually invoked. Um, Understand its fundamental, you know, explanatory power. So uh, that's what I was interested in trying to outline in that magazine article.
0: All right. Well, it's an excellent article. And down below in the description, people can certainly uh, get a link to the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. I think uh, Delinda would even send out sample issues if you contact them. And it's an incredible article alongside many other incredible articles. Uh, But now um, we're going to start talking a little bit more in depth. And you do this in your book about American settler colonialism, just getting into kind of the mechanics of what settler colonialism is and where it's happened. Although happened is far too passive a word uh, where it's been implemented across the world.
1: Yeah, you can see from, from the map you've put up that, um, you know, it's it's a global phenomenon. So maybe that's the first thing to understand, that this is not unique to the United States. It's not unique to, to Israel. Um, so it's been uh, a phenomenon that is not even um, unique to modern history. So there are scholars who work on ancient history. Um, you know, biblical narratives are replete with uh stories of settler colonialism or what you could um, frame as settler colonialism. You can see, you know, uh, Russian and Russian Imperial as well as Soviet history, uh, Latin America. So uh, the ones that most resonate uh, with Americans or actually most parallel, the United Mm -hmm. States experience would be Australia. Uh, Both were continent wide um, settler colonial projects which essentially We can begin to flesh it out involves the removal of indigenous people and their displacement by a a self-proclaimed superior, uh, civilized, modern, chosen people.
0: Right, right. Okay. so in terms of kind of key concepts, and I think this is where your book and articles and and lectures really bring out um, some depth just go through some of these key concepts that are absolutely fundamental to settler colonialism, if you can, maybe with an example and, you know, what we're, what you're really talking about with each of these. Right. Um, yeah. These really are kind of the key, uh,
1: key terms in in many respects um, and, and they they interrelate. So what, yeah, we can um, work, work through these. Um, so zero sum game, it's, Fundamentally, settler colonialism is about removal of the indigenous population. So it explicitly entails not sharing the land, refusing to sharing the land, displacing the indigenous population. Uh, I mean, nobody put it really better than uh, David Ben-Gurion in a letter to his son in 1937. And he he said, uh, in essence, we must drive Arabs out and replace them. And so that, that is the core essence of settler colonialism is displacing the indigenous population. And so it's a zero-sum game, uh, a winner or a loser. They're out. You're in. Um, and that's why establishing facts on the ground is so crucial to the history of settler colonialism. Facts on the ground is exactly what's happening in the since 1967 in the occupied uh, Palestinian territories. Um, that's removing the indigenous population and establishing a new set of facts in which uh, the settler invader uh, takes, takes their place. Um, mm-hmm. So this is you know, a- accompanied by uh, an important discourse by language, by justification, um, by depictions of the land as empty or a wilderness, or a virgin land; these were very common terms in early American history. That it was a virgin land, an empty land. Same with Australia. Um, same with with the Zionist movement. Uh, it was a land without a people. Well, it's in all cases uh, this was nonsense. There were indigenous people uh, on the land in all of these situations. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but these frameworks are really important uh, tropes justifying. Um, this process that's going on of removal of the indigenous uh, people. So uh, this, this carries forward into uh, American history in the 19th century uh, with the Indian removal and a whole series of uh, continental wide uh, cleansing operations. Okay. Um, I'm I'm
0: sorry. I, I moved this slide forward and I didn't mean to do that, but I wanted to ask you, you've written that, um, the idea of you can have massacres without genocide, but you can't have genocide without massacres. What, what does that mean?
1: Well, whenever you have genocide, you have, you have massacres occurring to, um, you know, pile up the numbers of, of dead. You know, there's a lot of um, you can do a lot with examining the language and arguing about definitions. There've been arguments between what is ethnic cleansing and what is genocide and you know, at a certain level, we have to remember, <clears throat> remember that, that all language is, is, um, is problematic, and, and so it's really how you define the terms. But in ethnic cleansing, for example, you have massacres, but you don't, it doesn't necessarily graduate to the level of, of genocide. Um, so scholars mm-hmm. and, and others will disagree about what constitutes genocide, what constitutes ethnic cleansing. But whenever you have, because people are not going to willingly displace from their lands, we make, uh, we started a new massive federal agency in this country called the Department of Homeland Security. Whenever people want to defend their homeland, uh, mm-hmm. they're going to, they're going to resist, um, and so this inevitably entails violence. I think the really important point here is that settler colonialism invariably does entail violence because people do not willingly give up their their homelands. And so whether it's in Palestine or the United States or Australia or Argentina or many other settings, um, these violent removal operations, whether it's the Nakba or the Trail of Tears or uh, driving the Sioux out of uh, the Black Hills, whatever it might be. um, And sometimes it does graduate to the level of genocide or what you could argue is genocide. So, for example, in California, as well as in Queensland of Australia, um, the, the killing was so massive that it was really genocidal. I mean, there was very little restraint in terms of men, women, children. Um, of course, Sheridan famously said, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. So there mm. are genocidal tendencies in all of this. But you can argue about when it graduates to the level of genocide, when it is quote unquote, merely ethnic cleansing, but in, in some, overall, it is a massive removal operation and that invariably entails violence.
0: Okay, so I want to I move on to uh, an image that I just think, you know, when you have depictions of the Trail of Tears and other removal in this country, and then you jump ahead to circulating documentary footage such as from the occupation of the american mind you know we talked to Sajali a, a few weeks ago and he shows this long trail of people after they've been uh, re- driven out of their homes and villages uh, during the Nakba. is this is this just a universal characteristic of settler colonialism the idea that you drive people out of their homes and villages because that's that's the prime real estate that justifies all of your movements and and doctrines.
1: That's uh, that's the essence of it. Yes, it's um, establishing those facts on the ground, whether it's through you know a creeping settlement. And in, in these cases, the two that you've really nicely juxtaposed here, and it is striking, actually, uh, you know, when you look at that photograph from the Nakba and look at this representation of the. The Trail of Tears. Um, So sometimes there are basic, you know, ethnic cleansing events. And uh, Mm -hmm. these are two cases. Um, So in the United States in in 1830, the U.S. Congress led by the the Jackson administration uh, legislated a massive ethnic cleansing operation known as the Indian Removal Act and it mm-hmm. involved removing these five so-called civilized tribes and incidentally they refer to themselves that way. Uh, the Seminole, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, uh, the Cherokee and the Creek uh, because they had acculturated to a great extent. Uh, the mm-hmm. Cherokee even owned slaves and these are not sort of you know Indians wearing rags and whooping and running around you know slinging tomahawks. These the are Stereotypes. People- now the stereotypes belie that uh, they had acculturated and uh, they spoke English, um, had large farms, etc. But these are two um, cases of uh, the Nakban and the Indian Removal Act of, of a formal you know, ethnic cleansing operation to facilitate the larger settler colonial movement. But sometimes, as with Israeli settlements, it's more of a creeping annexation. And, and of course, the United States did that well with a whole series of treaties. We're going to look at some of those, I think. And um, so it can be either creeping um, or gradual or evolutionary, but it can also have these, you know, uh, these stunning events of massive uh, removals of people to facilitate the larger project. And you've done a really so, nice job with these. Two. So,
0: you, so you, you jogged my memory, because in reading your book um, about American settler colonialism, It didn't seem, the acculturation and even um, those who, the uh, indigenes who laid their lives on the line fighting the British in the Revolutionary War or on the right side of the War of 1812, it didn't really matter at the end of the day because when it came to the land, they were always rounded down once again to the role and fate of the person or people who had to be displaced. It didn't seem to matter uh, what they did to build the country. They just were not part of the picture. Why why is that such a repeat theme in some of these um, passages? The the bottom line here is, you
1: know, uh, no matter what, they were still Indians. No matter what, they're still Palestinians. And so uh, race is inseparable, from this history. And the, the way settler colonialism works is that, you know, if you're chosen, you know, mm-hmm. whether by God or by manifest destiny, as Americans called it, which also had a strong religious element to it, and the United States is a, maybe the most religious country in the world. Uh, it's always a strong motivating factor. So um, when you're chosen to inherit the land, or believe that you're chosen, obviously, then Uh, Resistance to that becomes savage. It becomes terror. Um, If you you resist what is meant to be, what is sanctioned by God, uh, and here we see the angelic depiction of of American Manifest Destiny, and it's really important, this this very famous painting by John Gast. Mm -hmm. Manifest Destiny really applies to the 1840s, his painting, as you note there, was done in 1872. But look how benign the process looks here. We have this angelic figure. We have the, the Conestoga wagons. We have all the symbols of the excitement of the, the frontier settlement, the Pony Express, uh, the wagon train, You know, the farmer with the plow, um, the oxen. Uh, so settlement here is depicted, is, is romanticized. It is benign. And settler itself is a very benign term. I mean, who doesn't like settlers who go out and brave the frontier and, you know, and uh, hew out a living on the land and cross the rivers and, you know, cross the mountains and Lewis and Clark and all that. I mean, we all love that romanticized Western history. But beneath that, that angelic veneer, there was a very violent and white supremacist removal process going on, whether gradually or with these bursts such as the, um, Indian Removal Act we we talked about, but the point I want to emphasize that is if if you resist this um, process, then you become uncivilized, you become savage, you become a terrorist, you're reduced in the narratives. You're trying to impede you know rightful chosen inheritance of the land, and so that's where the violence and the intensity of of it uh, comes into play and the racism.
0: Right. And you see in this uh, American progress, you can almost not see in the dark uh, lower corner, the uh, the indigenous peoples, you know, bent over and, and sort of receding. And that one of the things you mentioned in your book is this constant refrain that the settlers were telling themselves that these, these people really the past and, and they were on their way out just in terms of it was you know, a dying race and all of this. And, and none of that was really true oh, by the exactly. time these things were made. So what, what did that whole, you know, end of the trail and, and all of that, what purpose did that serve? Well,
1: I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, even the title here, American Progress. So if you're representing civilization and progress and advancing modernity, those who stand in the way of that are irrational and savage, and and rightfully removed. And and you also mentioned, you know, history is really complicated stuff. And so the um, many Indians did fight with the Americans in the Revolutionary War, they fought with them in the War of 1812. Uh, Indians fought with each other over the Civil War, over whether to support the North or the South in in Oklahoma. So history is always complicated. But as you mentioned earlier, uh, when push came to shove, and, and push did come to shove, uh, even those Indians who'd allied with the United States. So the creeks were divided in a civil war after the War of 1812, and Jackson worked closely with um, the, the more acculturated creeks against the so-called Red Stick Creeks. And, but after that conflict, uh, all the creek land was taken. So it didn't matter if you tried to work or accommodate um, it didn't matter if you served as a scout for the, for the US Army after the Civil War. Um, ultimately, those Indians too were relegated to uh, reservations. I'm sorry, I think I went back to the last question and skipped your most recent one.
0: Yeah, no, that's fine. I, but the bottom line is these narratives of manifest destiny, land of, for people uh, land without a people, for a people without a land, all of this is to basically say we're justified in doing what we're doing is that is that the bottom line on this yeah absolutely and it all gets into how
1: history is represented and um you know we may get to it at the end and there's been a discussion unleashed now about how we should represent american history so history becomes really important in this and how you um frame and depict the past and why settler colonialism is is so useful but it also disturbs uh, a lot of a lot of people. Um, even my um, Israel's Armor book. Um, just right. quickly, a, a quick vignette on that. The one of the external reviewers, and I don't know who it was. It was a blind review, and that books go through in the publication process. But urged the editor to tell me to remove this this term, settler colonialism, um, because this reader felt it was unnecessary, but also somehow subversive. So. The term colonialism is is um, a powerful term, and it has powerful explanatory explanatory power, but uh, it's also a, a sensitive term, a neuralgic term, and um, neither neither Israel nor a lot of Americans or Australians like having their country's uh, history referred to as uh, one of settler colonialism, but uh, the term... No,
0: we're going to get to that at the end. I, I think yeah. we're entering that that dark age too, where it's just impermissible to have accurate histories bandied about places like universities. But uh, I wanted to jump ahead um, to this concept of depictions of the other. And you know, it's not completely accurate to say Thomas Nast of Harper's Weekly was trying to communicate. Uh, He was often satirical and critical of policies. Uh, But there's a whole host of uh, settler cartoons that were for settlers that just really depicted uh, the natives as uh, just subhuman. And I just had to note that uh, APAC has dabbled in that sort of same terrain. This is a cartoon uh, called Reading the Arab Mind from one of their uh, editions of the Near East Report. And I know you've gone through all the Near East reports as well. But this one is, is just, uh, you know, befuddled scientists trying to understand uh, this um, people who is into double talk and don't trust your brother and world of fantasy. And you've got these two western figures you know trying to understand this this almost subhuman uh psyche of this person i'm just wondering what you know it, it, and we have some definite history as well george washington and and jefferson's uh comments uh, what, what is this whole demonization uh about
1: yeah it, it's interesting and in, uh, the way it waxes and wanes as well and so you know there's and, and this uh, actually parallels uh, race relations with uh, African Americans as well. And you know, um, the uh, depiction, for example, of oh, say Booker T. Washington as a light-complected, you know, well-dressed Negro. Uh, sometimes Indians could be could be depicted as uh, Jefferson referred to them as in a paternal fashion as my children, and talked about ultimately they should acculturate, and that he had no ill. Uh, intentions for them. But at other times, if they resisted removal, uh, they were called uh, wild wolves and and uh, would face a, a violent repercussions. Uh, African-Americans, if they wanted to be depicted as uh, dangerous, lecherous rapists, uh, would be uh, dark-complected rather than light-complected in representation. So there's a whole history of of this, not only in these cartoons, um, which you've really Mm -hmm. done another nice job of juxtaposing both an Israeli and a a U.S. history uh, depiction, but um, also in, um, you know, there's been a lot of good historical work on national exhibitions, particularly those turn-of-the-century exhibitions which linked uh, Indians with Filipinos from the United States, invaded the Philippines in 1898 and subjugated it very violently. In a carryover of the continental, you know, um, ethnic cleansing project, if you will, so um, or at least certainly related, not the same kind of violence, but yeah. So these these uh, cultural depictions are always uh, very important. The uh, the one with Sherman here in the War Club is is interesting because this is at a point in the history where Indians were were being told, look, we want peace with you, we want to. Uh, You know, just if you'll just get off your land and stop riding freely and hunting buffalo and get onto the reservations, otherwise we will kill you, and we will kill men, women and children and, and, and that was the style of military aggression that was unleashed in the post
0: Civil War uh, period. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna get into those, uh, what do we call those deals of the century or treaties, Um, we're gonna get into those in a second but. I do find it interesting that, you know, even Washington did refer to Indians as wolves and beasts of prey. Uh, Raphael Tan, ex-general chief of staff of Israel, was involved in allowing Sabra and Shatila to happen, once likened them to drugged cockroaches in a bottle. So there is this sort of idea that, you know, these people don't really, they're not really worth anything. They don't have any right to what they have. And so they really do have to make way. Um, and, and I do note that in your book, you, you, you cite that Jefferson absolutely uh, would argue that uh, the natives had the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but not property. And so it was interesting that uh, he kind of stopped short there. But um, if you could tell us a little bit about the role of land speculation you noted washington and jefferson were both land speculators um and land grabbing and then we'll move into the uh, treaties in the next slide
1: okay well it's really all about uh land as as you just suggested with your comment about about jefferson uh, sure my children uh the indians can have life liberty and uh but they can't have the land and so um you know, this actually predated the American Revolution by by centuries, and there's a whole history of that that I go into in the book. But um, a lot of people, uh, you know, were taught in school to think about the, the Redcoats and the Boston Massacre and taxation without representation. But what really kicked off the American Revolution in 1763, uh, to background your question, is the, the proclamation line when the British tried to draw a a line at the top of the Appalachian Mountains and preclude American settlers from crossing that,
0: Mm -hmm. because the
1: British didn't want any more Indian conflict, they just fought a huge war with the French, Um, that ignited the revolution. So settlement is deeply, it is essential to what America is. And this belief that uh, you have the right to inherit the land, displace the people living on it, and that Western settlement could not be impeded either by the uh, colonial um, mother country, much less by these uh, savage pre-civilizational Indians. Uh, This is very American. So, and and it it is deeply rooted. It it goes way, way back. And so it is all about the land. And um, that's the one aspect that can't be tolerated. You can tolerate, you can represent Indians as a noble savage, Mm-hmm. Uh, celebrate their their bravery, their interesting cultures, but uh, not their uh retaining their homelands
0: all right, so um just to move on a little bit more here into how well some of these uh deals with the uh u s government tell tell us all about these which make a prominent appearance in your book before we turn into more of the the look at uh, Israel and the israel lobby
1: well, you mentioned the um the National Museum there in the bottom, and <clears throat> so the, as you well know having visited there's you can there's an excellent display on the whole series. These are just a few of the many many uh treaties. this sport Mackintosh happens to run right through our backyard here in uh here in ohio and um it's One of the differences between the United States and Australia was that Australia formally declared it an empty land, whereas Uh the United States acknowledged that Indians were here and preferred to displace them legally, uh, which is, you know, in part why we have casino gambling today. But uh, there were an awful lot of treaties negotiated, and um, these are some of the more significant ones. The first Indian removal Treaty was uh, a Dancing Rabbit Creek to remove the Choctaw. So again, it's all about the land. The fact is that the settlers of Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi they wanted the land, and they wanted even right. the fine homes many of these Indians lived in. Again, right. these are not whooping savages. If you you can tour the Southeast, there's a, you, any of our listeners can look it up online. There's a kind of Indian removal tour you can take, and my wife and I have done this, and you can visit some of these incredible plantations that these supposed Mm -hmm. savages own. Uh, The Treaty of Fort Laramie is really interesting because uh, in in an effort to um, make peace with the powerful Sioux Tribe, the Americans agreed they could retain the Black Hills and hunting rights uh, in, in the area. And once gold was discovered, once settlers went out, once the vision of the Transcontinental Railroad, very important, was um, in the works, then this, the Americans simply reneged on this treaty and uh, sent uh, Custer out to reconnoiter. We know what happened there. Uh, After, here at the point where Indians are basically, typically, sort of the Wounded Knee Massacre is typically famously seen as the culmination of this whole long centuries of violent removal. Um, By that time, the Dawes Act had uh, started to really wreck Indian culture um, by trying to make them into individual American farmers, uh, which would involve putting aside their traditional, um, non-individual-oriented, community-oriented agriculture, and it challenged typical gender roles where women did most of the farming. Now, Indian men were supposed to become farmers, but more importantly, and, and apropos of your previous slide, in um, mm-hmm. It it involved taking more Indian land and making that available to settlers. For the same reason, the Sooners um, drove into Oklahoma a couple of decades later and drove the Indians out of the area where they'd been removed in in the 1830s and and pledged to be given that land forever. So it's a whole series, as is very well known, of fraudulent uh, treaties. The other aspect you've got noted here, I've visited the Carlisle former army base in Pennsylvania, very interesting place. You can still see the graves of Indian children there. Um, These young children, this is what, it's very telling what humanitarian reformers proposed for Indians was that this is humanitarianism at work now, removing them from their families, taking them from their mothers and fathers, shipping them back east to this army barracks to have their hair cut, to be dressed like whites and to be made to speak only English, Mm -hmm. and because of the impact of disease, which we haven't mentioned, but as I think uh, people probably well know here in this time of pandemic we live in now, uh, the worst pandemic and maybe in all of human history afflicted North American Indians, 80 to 90% of them died as a result of the Colombian uh, exchange beginning um, in the late 15th century. Anyway, child so, removal was considered a humanitarian act, but more young Indian um, Indians died at Carlisle and they're still buried there than actually got their degrees.
0: So you mentioned um, the museum display and it is a, a phenomenal display. It's, uh, I believe it's called nation to nation and it's just treaty after treaty promising this, promising that. Is it fair to say that most of these treaties were broken or undermined by the U.S. and or settlers? Oh, yes. Yes, it's very fair
1: to say that, um, and, and to say both, settlers and, and the United States itself. Um, from a U.S. perspective, um, getting settlers to, to adhere to these treaties was impossible. But the United right. States also broke uh, broke many of them, you know, apropos of what um, presumably a lot of our listeners are most interested in um, Israel in the lobby, et cetera. But this whole issue of land that we've been discussing in an American history context, you know, it's it's the same. And and if people wonder, you know, why, why can't we just get that Middle East peace treaty and, you um, you know, the reason is because of settler colonialism. It's all about uh, occupying the land and removing indigenous people from the land. And so there's no settling
0: for so, anything so let's, less than that. Let's get into that. And, you know, there are obviously some differences between what happened in the United States and what happens uh, in Palestine. So... Tell us a little bit, uh, move us into your historical treatments of the Israel lobby, Israel, and what they were trying to do in seemingly the wrong era. Right. Yeah, uh, this is the subject of the, what I hope
1: is a forthcoming book I've, I've written, and um, it's under review uh, now on a whole history of the the lobby, the <clears throat> Israel's armor book ended uh, after the 67 war and the beginning of the occupation. And this one takes it up to the present and builds on that um, There's a lot of material where, where um, Walton Mearsheimer left off and, and a lot of material that they didn't cover that I've dealt with through researching the Near East report and others. But yeah, your, your question here about the timing is one of the points I really tried to flesh out in this forthcoming book, which should be out, I hope, sometime in 2021. Um, So what is unique? A lot of of um, Israeli settler colonialism is not unique. It parallels other settler colonial histories like the United States, like Australia, like South Africa. But what is really unique, there are two things unique about uh, Zionism and Israeli settler colonialism. One is the Nazi genocide, which gave a unique driving force behind the Zionist uh, movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's unique and made it particularly intense. And I think um, you know, this vow that, that this time you know, we're not gonna be the victims, we'll be the aggressors is, is very important. And uh, I use the term congenital aggression to explain um, Israeli identity and the the whole Palestine issue uh, reflects their congenital aggression. So some of this comes from from the the history of the Nazi genocide. But the other unique aspect of this I try to really flesh out is note that the United States, obviously, the Declaration of Independence was 1776. James Cook was, quote unquote, discovering Australia at that time. These are deeply rooted settler colonial um, stories, but Israel is modern. And so this is a post-World War II phenomenon. And I think what's most significant about that is that um, you see the um, UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights Mm -hmm. um, icon there. Um, This, it coincided with an era of unprecedented acknowledgement of right. this displacement of indigenous people, of the need for universal declaration of human rights, of the drive to build international justice machinery, which of course, along with the UN, Israel, and the United States uh, regularly flaunt and have been contemptuous of, and to their everlasting discredit, have undermined efforts to promote international justice and human rights in the, in the UN. Um, so this, to get to the lobby grant, is what you know. I'm arguing in this next book makes the lobby so essential is that its work was really cut out for it right and it's the need for the lobby was very great because of these powerful discourses and this whole era of decolonization that unfolded after world war ii throughout the tri-continental world latin america asia and africa was just full of countries decolonizing and denouncing colonialism well how do you put into place a settler colonial society at this time, you do it by distorting the history, by demonizing the Palestinian enemy other, uh, some of these issues we've talked about, homeland defense becomes irrational, becomes terrorism. And so the lobby uh, has had really important work to do. And uh, unfortunately it's done it you know extremely well. And there's been a lot of denial of that in uh, both, uh, in, especially in this country
0: right so you have this at the end of the 1800s this first you know world zionist congress and herzl's book the jewish state but then they kind of flail around for decades and decades and you know the american jewish committee and and some of the other organizations you think of as intensely zionist they kind of didn't have uh much impetus their membership numbers weren't growing they they were influential clearly, but it really took the uh, tragedy in Europe to give them sort of the, uh, the drive and justification. That's, that's a really interesting part of all this obviously, but um, as you say, it gets very interesting after 67 when there are even tiny efforts at accountability in terms of settler colonialism in seized territories. Tell us a little bit about uh, George H.W. Bush and uh, Yitzhak Shamir. Uh,
1: okay, I think I'll, I'll go back uh, just a little bit in that, in that history and um, talk about, for example, um, uh, Lebanon. And so right. the, the invasion in Lebanon and the violence of it shocked a lot of Israelis and ignited an Israeli peace movement and is really the beginning of a lot of uh, American Jews beginning to call into question Israel and uh, Israeli uh, foreign policy and Israeli behavior and is Israel's role in this perpetual conflict because it was it was shocking and violent and brutal. You already mentioned Sabra and Shatila, a lot of things uh, went on in, in Lebanon. Um, but the Reagan election um, uh, enabled Israel Uh, The Republican Party really began to move toward uh, trying to cultivate, uh, carve into traditional democratic domination of the Jewish vote in America. And the lobby really grew in the 1980s. It grew powerfully and really became the sort of fearsome organization that targeted critics and drove some out of offices in the 70s and 80s. So by the time we get to Bush um, here, uh, of course, had been Reagan's vice president and had a lot of international experience, much more so than Reagan and and much more than his son, uh, Mm -hmm. for example, uh, had been CIA director and um, had served in the UN and ambassador to China, et cetera. Bush really wanted a settlement of the Middle East conflict in the wake of the Persian Gulf War. And what he well understood was that Israel and the lobby were adamantly opposed because this again to get to our larger framework of settler colonialism they don't want to compromise on settlements
0: right not even in the cards things. what's that not even in the cards ever no
1: no it's it's not something to discuss um so they um bush really tried to um to uh, rack up the pressure with uh, withholding this loan that you mentioned here and this is one of many occasions in which the lobby Orchestrated a, a massive uh, Hasbara um, event, a propaganda event in Washington, a large demonstration, which Bush handled um, skillfully and depicted himself as one lonely little guy right. against this powerful lobby. And uh, Shamir, who was uh, a terrorist himself in his own his own background, like Begin, so Israel literally uh, choosing terrorists to run to run its government. Um, in at this time period was uh, utterly uncompromising. Uh, They did not want the Madrid conference to take place. So the upshot of this is he forced them into the Madrid conference, they get the money back. And of course, the money we haven't even talked about uh, you did in the intro and but presumably our listeners and viewers know about the 10, uh, 10 year $38 billion and how this tiny little country of less than 9 million people has such. Right. um, massive access to American financing for its militarization. In any case, um, I think to, to cap this little story off, the really important thing about this is um, that uh, I think it was Thomas Friedman wrote this. Uh, I certainly don't agree with him very often, but this was an accurate depiction, I think that the Republicans vowed never to get out-Israeled again. And so this helps you helps understand Trump today. And that the Republicans have basically uh, totally appeased Israeli settler uh, aggression. And so the point is, when you did try to stand in the way, it's, um, you know, you're joining the ranks of the uh, of the you're siding with the Palestinian uncivilized forces and doing that. And and the lobby really went after Bush.
0: Right, right. I don't think it cost
1: him the next election, but it hurt him.
0: Right, right. So, right, we're talking about $250 billion in inflation adjusted aid that we know about, and lots and lots of covert aid that we may never know about. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting problem. Well, um, I I wanted to, to try to get your impression Uh, Just on this last slide asking whether there's any sort of instance of a major settler colonial society um, failing to continue expanding and uh, lobbying for du jour recognition of what it's done, and whether you see any prospects on the horizon for the US to maybe redeem its past a little bit and and not allow this country to be such a platform for things like annexation, uh, which is obviously uh, an imminent, imminent, imminent sort of uh, question right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, there's, I've got a book right
1: here on my desk, the Rutledge Handbook of the History of Settler Colonialism, and it, it has like 30 you know historical case studies, and as I mentioned, going back to biblical times and, to the, and all over the world. So there, there are many examples of settler colonial history, or you can argue, settler colonial history, and they don't all end the same, same way. Um, for example, the French were driven out of Algeria, which they really considered part of greater France, and the settlers there were very bitter about it. Um, so it doesn't always end with settler triumph, but it often does, and this, I think, really kind of takes us to where um, liberal American Jews and progressive American Jews and even moderate Jews—everybody but the really far right anymore beginning to see what this issue really is all about. And uh, I think it takes us toward the one-state solution, because um, you know, particularly if if this annexation ever goes through, then you know, it's it's a really uh, massive step. And so, you know, the, the drive for uh, justice and human rights, and this is where BDS is so important and other um, ongoing efforts at resistance. Um, the, the solution here, you know, the two state solution never arguably had a chance because of these settler colonial rally uh, realities we've been talking about. Israel was never mm-hmm. going to compromise these sacred drives. But what it's going to have to be forced to do is to uh, not be an apartheid state. And so as for the United States, I mean, this is what we're all trying to achieve is to make enough Americans see that their tax dollars are going to support, you know, a, a white supremacist apartheid state. We, we sort of think of white supremacy as pertaining to our own African American population, but uh, mm-hmm. Israel is a racial state. And even the Palestinians who live in Israel are, are profoundly marginalized. They have unequal it's separate and unequal, much like American history. And and then in the occupied territories, it's just ruthless uh, repression. And even the kind of repression, you know, we've talked about today, worse than child removal is child incarceration. In this country, we can't even get broad support for a bill introduced by Betty McCollum to, you know, not torture children in Israeli prisons. So right, you know, right. we've got a long way to go, but I think if settler colonialism is the reality, and if The occupation continues, and particularly if it caps off with this um, massive annexation, the only solution is that one-state solution, and that is uh, a a country that is a real democracy and has justice for all its citizens. And uh, American pressure could make that happen if uh, Americans
0: Well, so a a lot of this uh, history we've been going through here uh, is not welcome there's even sort of a reactionary backlash from the very top of this country down i just want to show a quick clip and get your comments on whether you think that uh, professors like yourself are even going to be able to continue offering these perspectives through books and, and lectures and 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 whatnot say it against american history is toxic i want to make sure i get the audio on this hang on a second yeah we got the audio sorry Here we go. Second try. American history is toxic propaganda. Ideological poison. That if not removed, will dissolve. The civic bonds that tie us together will destroy our country. We want our sons and daughters to know that they are citizens of the most exceptional nation in the history so i just gotta i just gotta ask whether you know giving people these sorts of views is uh toxic and poison and and bad for the use of the or the uh, youth of this country walter
1: well it just you know as a historian it's it's really interesting because um you know history's at the you know, so it sounds trite, the root of everything, and so how you in- interpret your past is really crucial to these contemporary uh, debates, and that kind of rhetoric, um, it, it came out in the 1990s as well, um, when there was efforts to uh, apologize, so it might be appropriate time to mention that deep in the bowels of a military appropriations bill, mm-hmm. the United States has apologized to Indians for for taking their land but in other countries these apologies were especially like in Canada more celebrated more more open there was a lot of uh, fanfare surrounding them but history is a deeply neuralgic subject and so this effort to contain history as well and in relationship to shaping present policy that Trump uh and the far right are representing there it's it's not new and um but it is uh extremely divisive and very ugly. And um, it has nothing to do with academic freedom or freedom of speech and expression either. I will say that uh, as a lot of people in the Black um, Lives Matter movement and other venues have said, you know, uh, they love this country. And many of these African American spokesmen talk about, you know, they want to celebrate America. They want America to, to live up to its promise. They want, you know, Black young men to not be you know, killed by police and to not be incarcerated and to have opportunities and to improve. So it's not a matter of some people love America and some people don't love America. It's a matter of some people want to ensconce um, punitive rule and others want the United States to live up to its, its greater ideals. It's better angels, as Lincoln said, of, right. uh, of justice and, and peace and, and uh, inclusion.
0: All right. Well, um, I want to thank you for this excellent discussion. We're all going to be looking forward to your next book, of course. Um, in terms of our series extra, you can visit israellobbycon.org and get information about all the past and upcoming extra events, all the archive video, including this one. And if you found this to be enlightening and want to subscribe, to the Wormia YouTube channel. You can just hit the, the bell down there below and get announcements that way. Uh, tell your friends, uh, join the email lists you see down there so you get announcements. And thanks for coming to today's Extra. Thank you, Grant. Thanks, Walter.